We'll turn your attention to Ephesians chapter 6. Continuing on with what we were, what we had begun last week, the section of Scripture. Last week we looked at Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Today we're going to look at 13 through 17. And then next week, Lord willing, we will do 18 through 20. New Living Translation says this, Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will, be, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully in addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so today, just for a few minutes, I want to preach on this thought, standing firm in the battle, standing firm in the battle. Before you're seated, let's be seated, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you are for us, that we are not in this battle alone, but that you are with us, you are for us, you give us everything that we need to survive. I pray, Lord, that the power of your spirit would be with us today, Lord, be with the preaching of your word, let it take root in our hearts and lives, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Today is D-Day. Seventy-seven years ago, the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy. And, of course, last week we celebrated, this past Monday, we celebrated Memorial Day for those who lost their lives in battle and all of the, the wars fought by the American forces all the way back to the Civil War. In that ongoing battle that began on June 6, 1944, some 10,000 plus people, Allied forces, uh, perished and gave their lives. Some 20 to 30,000 additional people were injured in various ways or went missing. And, and I can't imagine if you know anything about the story. They, they were 150,000 plus Allied forces were going to attack and try to take the beachheads on 50 miles of beach there on in the area of Normandy in France. They split it up into five sections, roughly of 10 miles each, and the Germans, however, were fortified. They were expecting some kind of attack, and they had only 50,000 troops or so there, but they had all kinds of artillery and a variety of different things, and uh, landmines and booby traps, and, and all manner of uh, weapons to keep the Allied forces from taking the beach and beginning a beachhead that would, of course, if they were to do that, would then be, allow them to free France from the Germans. And ultimately, that is what they did. That in spite of the 10,000-plus the deaths and all of the 20,000-plus the other casualties and injuries, they were able to take the beaches of Normandy, and that began the end for the German forces. But what I can't imagine is trying to fight a battle without the proper weapons or the proper equipment. Not going in with, in this case, as most of what our text says, the, the defensive type things that we need to withstand the forces of the enemy. I, I can't imagine 
though if you were an American soldier charging the, the beaches of Normandy out of the, the sea craft that was dropping you off and charging those beaches and you didn't have a gun, you didn't have a weapon to fight with, you didn't have any kind of armor, you didn't have a helmet, that would be foolish for anyone to try to do that. I would tell you, though, as we looked at last week, we are in a spiritual battle, and in the same way, it is foolish for us to go into battle unprepared for what the enemy will throw against us. Our text talks about in the evil day, and that there is coming a day when we will need to stand firm, when we will need to resist the enemy, we will need to fight the battle. And in fact, really, this time of evil not doesn't really just speak of the everyday evil that you and I face, although that is a part of it, but it speaks of a specific evil battle that you and I will someday face. Everybody will face an evil day. And what I would tell you is that this evil day is is primarily a crisis of faith. That there comes a point in our Christian walk when we are going to be attacked by the enemy and we're going to be attacked by circumstances and situations and we have to be prepared for that. Otherwise, our faith will crumble on that day. It is a crisis of faith. And I would also tell you that when you get to that crisis of faith, it's too late to decide to put on the armor of God. It's too late to decide to prepare for battle when you're in battle. And so what Paul is telling the people in Ephesus, and by extension, he is telling us today, is that if we are going to stand firm when the battle comes, we must put on the whole armor of God. Not part of the armor, but all of the armor, and all of the things that God has given us to withstand the enemy in that day. Just a, just a quick show of hands. Has anybody here ever had a crisis of faith? A few people. Maybe everybody, as it slowly, people weren't sure if they wanted to admit that or not. It's okay. That's why, that's why this passage is here, is because we are going to have that. That there is going to come a day in our walk with Jesus Christ where we are going to have to decide, do we really know what we believe? Are we really following Jesus? Are we going to continue to follow Jesus? That moment will come. And Paul is telling us that when the day comes, if we're going to stand firm, we have to have the proper weapons, the proper proper defensive armor in place and the proper weapons to fight the enemy. If we make it through the battle of this crisis of faith, I would tell you that nothing then will cause us to lose out with God. That if you can make it through a real crisis of faith, And you can come through that and say, you know what, I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That nothing else that comes against us is going to cause us to turn away from Jesus Christ. When I was, uh, how old was I? (laughs) It was 1993. I've told this story a little bit, but I I went through a crisis of faith. And and it wasn't the the typical crisis of faith in the sense of, did I believe God existed and, and did I believe in my salvation? But it was really more about a crisis of faith. Would I follow him when I didn't want to? Would I follow him when he's telling me to do something that I didn't like? And I wrestled with this decision for, for three months. 
and I finally listened to the voice of the Lord. And I, and I would tell you that that three-month period of my life has shaped everything else in my life. During that three-month period, when I, when I felt like God was telling me to, to quit my job at the post office and do outreach full-time, I made some big decisions that no matter what He told me, I was going to follow Him even if I didn't understand it or even if I didn't like it. And, and leaving a job at the postal service and, and giving up the income and all the toys that I was buying and had planned on buying, giving up all of that and, and telling God, and I, I remember, I know exactly where I was, I could take you to the spot today where I was driving, and I said, God, if I have to ride a bicycle the rest of my life to do your will, I will do that. And from that point to this, while I'm just like everybody else and, and money's good, money does not drive what I do. Money does not cause me to, to lose out with God or to not show up at church or not do various things for God because I'm seeking money. If I was after money, I wouldn't be here today. I had a much better paying gig before I came here to plant a church. It's not about money. But those three months of a crisis of faith on, will I follow God? That was what it was all about. Will I trust Him? Will I follow Him? Your crisis of faith is probably going to be different. It could be when, when bad circumstances come and you can't understand why things are going wrong in your life and you have to decide, do I still believe that God is for me? Do I still believe He's on my side? Do I still believe that He exists? Whatever it is, there will be a crisis of faith and many of you may have already faced that. But if you have not, you need to be prepared if you're going to stand firm in the evil day. I may have mentioned this last week in the, the four soil parable that Jesus gives. When you read that and, and on three of the soils, the, the, the seed takes root and begins to spring up. The plant begins to grow, but the enemy comes in and circumstances and situations come in. There will be a crisis of faith. Something is going to come in and cause you to have to make a real decision. Do I really believe this? Do I really believe the Bible is true? Do I really believe the salvation experience that I had wasn't just emotion? It wasn't just made up. It is really what the Bible says. So how is it that you and I can stand firm? How can we be prepared to face the enemy? How can we ensure that we will be victorious? Before I get into verse 13, let me go back to verse 11. Where Paul in verse 11, he says, put on the armor. Now once again, I don't want to be overly technical with the Greek language for you today. But that put on the armor, and I briefly mentioned this, this last week, it is an imperative, it is a command to put on the armor. It happens to be that it is what's called an aorist command. It's an aorist middle imperative. All right, now hang with me for just a minute, okay, I'm going to explain this. An aorist, it speaks to the, the time period, like past, present, or future. But aorist just means that it is at some point in time. You have to put on the armor. At some particular point, you have to do this. It's not an option, it's an imperative, so you have to put it on. But unlike what a present verb is, where you're continually putting it on, 
Here Paul uses the aorist tense, which means at some point put it on. I would tell you that when you put it on, you got to keep it on. You don't keep putting it on over and over. You put it on and you just keep it on. And the middle piece of this, unlike when I, I told you last, last week about being strong in the Lord, it's what God is doing to us. Here it is a middle verb, middle tense verb, which means we are doing it to ourselves. God doesn't put it on us. We have to put it on us. That we as the subject do this to ourselves. At some point, we have to get the armor of God on. It is a command. Because if we don't do it, guess what? We will not stand firm in the evil day. Is that too technical? You guys follow me? You tracking with me? Put it on at some point and keep it on. And it's not an option. And you do it to yourself. It doesn't automatically happen. You have to do it to yourself. But then, in verse 13, he changes the verb tense. And once again, it's a command. But it's uh, aorist active. In other words, now it's something that is going to be, uh, that we have to once again do. He's just restating this command to put on. And then he says that we are to stand firm. Once again, that is also an active imperative command to stand firm. It is something that you and I have to do. We have to stand firm. So, so how are we going to stand firm? I got all the technical stuff out of the way, maybe. How are we going to stand firm? We see in verse 14 that we are to stand firm with God's truth. Stand firm with God's truth. The Bible says, stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. Stand your ground. And over these next few verses, 14, 15, and 16, they're actually all one sentence in Greek. And the command in this passage is to stand firm. It is what he is telling us to do is that we are to stand firm. And the way in which we are to stand firm is to put on the armor. Specifically, here he says we are to put on the the belt of truth. or, Or if I could say it in a different nuance, stand firm having put on the belt of truth. It's a participle. It's something that you do in order to stand firm. The belt of truth is to be understood. And and keep in mind that Paul is looking, more than likely, he's looking at a Roman soldier when he is talking about all of this armor. When I think of armor, typically, I'm thinking of knights of the round table type armor. Anybody else thinking about that? Now, I know that's not in the Bible, but that's just what I think of, man. You got the chain mail, and you got the, the bigger shield, a certain kind of shield, and you got this really long sword. If, I, if you were to ask me about armor, and you're talking about swords and shields, that's the first thing I go to, even though I live my life around the Bible. I, I think of that type of time period. But here, Paul is talking, he's looking at a Roman soldier, more than likely, that's guarding him and keeping him in prison. And a Roman soldier had certain kinds of armor and certain things that he would wear. Part of it was this big leather belt that he would wear that from that leather belt the, the breastplate would attach and the sword would attach and, and, and a number of the other elements of what he was doing and what he was wearing all revolved around the belt. And while Paul may have been arbitrary and, and picking godly characteristics and godly things and just attaching them to some piece of the armor. I'm not sure that he he was just being arbitrary, but 
He is looking then at truth as being that central thing that holds everything else together. The truth is the most important because if we don't have truth and we don't believe truth, then nothing else really matters. The Bible says that the Word of God is truth. That what God speaks, it is truth. And we're going to look at the Word of God in a little more detail later, but the Bible also tells us that Jesus is truth. In fact, he said it himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I would tell you that truth and, and understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one true and living God, that core doctrine is essential to everything else. It holds everything else together. Jesus is not a, just a good man. He's not just a good teacher, but he is the God of the universe in human form that has come down to be the sacrifice for your sin and mine and now is sitting at the right hand, the Bible says, of the throne of God. He is the God of the universe. And following Jesus is what holds all of our Christian life together. Not believing about Him, but trusting and following Him. You've probably heard me say this, and I will continue to say this. A lot of Christian doctrine that you hear out there is just believe facts about Jesus. All you have to do is believe certain things about Him. It's not what the Bible says. We are to follow him. When Jesus is calling Peter and John, he's calling his disciples. Here's what he never did say. Hey, come believe I'm the Messiah. What did he say? Come follow me. It is about following Jesus Christ. And we follow him because he is the Messiah. And we follow him because he is the only way to heaven. We follow him because he is the propitiation for our sin. He is the appeasement of God's wrath for our sin. I quoted this earlier. Paul said to Timothy, he says, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. There's no question about whom I have believed. I'm not believing in Confucius, and I'm not believing in Muhammad, I'm not believing in Buddha, I am believing in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I know whom I have believed. The question that for you and I is, you have to get to the point where you know whom you have believed. You will not stand in the evil day if you're not sure that Jesus is all he says he will be. C.S. Lewis used this argument called Lord Liar Lunatic with people who weren't sure about what they thought about Jesus. And he said, if, if Jesus professes himself to be God, and he did, but he knows that he is not God, then he's a liar. That he is proclaiming to be something that he's not, and he knows he's not. He's just a liar. There's a lot of, every, I have not met anybody that says Jesus is a bad person. I've not met anybody that says, man, that Jesus guy, he was terrible. I've met a lot of people that say, well, he's just a man, or he's a good teacher. So C.S. Lewis used that, and he said, if he says he's God, and he knows he's not God, he's a liar. Don't tell me he's a good person. He's a liar. You can't have it both ways. He said, if he says that he's God, and he did say that, 
and he thinks he really is God, but he's not. Well, then he's a lunatic. I don't know too many lunatics. I say, man, that's a great person. I think I've learned what they have to say. But when it comes to Jesus, he said he said that he was God, and he wasn't a liar, and he wasn't a lunatic, and he really was who he said he was. That makes him Lord of all. And you and I have to believe that he is indeed Lord of all. We have to have the belt of truth and say nothing else matters but following Jesus Christ. He is the only way to heaven. Can I get an amen? Secondly, if we're going to stand firm, we have to stand firm with God's righteousness. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. It is this body armor that is what many other versions of the Bible would list as a breastplate, but there is also a back piece of this as well. And, and so the New Living Translation puts it as body armor, that it's, it's not just the front, but it's this back piece as well. It is the equivalent, the ancient equivalent of, of the Kevlar bulletproof vest today. But this righteousness, defining righteousness is this way, the act or result of doing what is right before God. The act or the result of doing what is right before God. That if you and I are going to stand against the devil, that we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And, And there is a piece of this that is about our action. That we are to live holy, we are to live righteous, we are to live like everything God has declared us to be. But I think specifically here is this understanding that the righteousness of God is imputed to us. Look at your neighbor and say, imputed. That'll be the only time this week you use that word, maybe this year that you use that word unless you're talking about godly things. We don't just say the word imputed, we don't use that. But what it means is this, it is something that is taken and is given and placed on us. Specifically, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is given and placed on us. We don't earn His righteousness. We don't deserve His righteousness. We don't purchase His righteousness. It is just given and placed on us. You hear people talking about that that God sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ. What that means is that the righteousness of God is now, or the righteousness of Jesus Christ is taken on us. So that when God looks at us, even when we haven't lived up to everything He's called us to do, and everything He's called us to be, and we've lived like sinners, that His righteousness has still been placed upon us. And He sees us like that. Does that mean that we should go and sin? Does that mean we should live any way we want? No. We are to live up to what he has called us to be. It is what Paul continually says in the book of Ephesians. It's what I've told you before where where the Bible Bible gives us the indicative before the imperative. Here's what God has declared about us. Now live like he has declared that. God says you're a great person. Well, go live like a great person. He's not telling you to be a great person unless he's made you a great person. He's telling us to go live holy because he has made us holy. Go live righteous because he has made us righteous. Go live like we are saved because he has saved us. And so he says all of this, but understanding that we have the righteousness of God in us, which means 
that when the enemy comes against us and one of his favorite tactics is to condemn us, that you and I do not have to be condemned because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ placed on us. There is therefore, Paul would write in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. That the devil can't condemn us when we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We do need to get our affections and our desires in alignment with the righteousness of God, but he places on us his righteousness. Paul would write, we have righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Aren't you thankful that we're not getting to heaven because of how holy we are, but we're getting to heaven because his righteousness has been placed on us? And I would tell you, in a, in a moment of transparency, sometimes I'm overly transparent, the best of Christians will not make it to heaven because of how good they live. Because when the Bible says, be ye holy, for I am holy, you can't do that. If you could be as holy as God, then maybe you'd be God. If you could be as holy as God, you wouldn't need a Savior. So the only way you and I get to heaven is when His righteousness is put on us. But I will tell you, that if we don't live in accordance with his righteousness, the devil will come to us and will say, look what you just did. Look how you messed up, and he will use it against us in the evil day. So it is not an excuse, and it is not a, a, a what I'm telling you is not just, well, we, we're righteous so we can do anything. That's not the way it works. But understand that no matter what the devil can throw at you, all you got to do is say, I'm righteous because he's righteous. I'm righteous because I belong to him. I am a child of the king, and I'm going to get to heaven regardless of what the devil says about me because of his righteousness. Why don't you give the Lord a hand clap of praise right now? Thirdly, we are to stand firm with God's peace. Paul says, for shoes put on the peace that comes from God, or from the good news, so that you will be fully prepared. Prepared to stand is what he's saying. Peace with God through the good news or the gospel. The word peace here means the opposite of war and dissension. It is a calm and tranquility frequently at odds with the situation that you're facing. Anybody had any trials and tribulation this week? Anybody? This month? <laughs> this lifetime? <laughs> Part of what this word peace means is when we're in difficult situations and, and when anybody else would be pulling their hair out, that we are calm and we can be tranquil knowing that God is at work in us and God is at work for us that is a part of it philippians 4 7 which says and the peace of god which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through christ jesus that the peace of god will calm us and will help us to deal with whatever it is we're dealing we're we're going through even in that evil day and even in that crisis of faith 
But there is another aspect of peace that maybe what he is talking about here, and that is this, is that when we come to Jesus Christ and we are born again and we are saved, we who were once enemies with God are now at peace with God. That no longer are we standing in opposition and at war with who God is and with God's ways and with God's plan, but now we are in alignment with His will, in alignment with His plan, and in alignment with His ways. We are at peace with Him. Not just this calm and tranquility that comes whenever we have bad circumstances. God does give that once again as righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. We get that. But in the middle of hand-to-hand combat with the enemy, we can be at peace because God is on our side. As the song says, if God is fighting for us, or just declares that God is fighting for us, we don't have to worry about the enemy when God is on our side and He is fighting for us. I use that phrase, hand-to-hand combat, I don't know if I explained that to you last week, but when it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood or we battle not, it is a word that means hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. We're not sitting on a, on a long hill away and shooting arrows at the enemy and he's shooting arrows at us from a long distance away, but it is hand-to-hand combat is the word that Paul chose to use under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And when we are in that situation, we can know that God is on our side that we have peace with god in all of those situations peace is the anchor that keeps us peace is the truth that we are dug in and that i'm not giving up i am standing firm and he uses your feet to be shod with that preparation of the gospel of peace once again and and you probably know this Roman soldiers had an advantage over their enemies most of the time because in their, their sandals slash boots that they would wear, they had nails sticking out of the bottom so they could get traction, much like cleats and, and sports today. And their enemies, while their enemies are slipping and sliding, they had traction. And Paul uses this piece of God. He says, if you're going to stand firm, you need to have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that the peace with God, peace of God and peace with God will keep you in the evil day when you're fighting the enemy. When you're fighting the crisis of faith, you can stand firm. You don't have to be slipping and sliding, but you can stand firm against the enemy of your soul. Let me hurry. Fourthly, we are to stand firm with God's face. Faith, in addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. And and I, I wrestled a little bit with how to word this, and, and I like to do a lot of parallelism, if you haven't gathered that, in the various aspects or points of my sermon. You can see that more clearly if you go to the, the church app and follow along there. Because not too many people say God's faith. But it's God's faith in the sense that it is the faith that comes from God. It's not the faith God has, it's the faith God gives us. That He is the source of that. 
fact, we know that from Scripture that God, the Bible says, has given to every man a measure. In fact, I think it says the measure of faith. That everybody is given faith. That all of us can believe in Jesus Christ. All of us can choose to follow Him because He has given us the faith to do so. Paul would write in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That the, the way to grow our faith and to strengthen our faith and to increase our faith is to hear and listen to the Word of God. To take the Word of God in and it grows us. So with all of that, God is the source of our faith. If we're going to stand firm, we've got to have the shield of faith. And the shield, the Roman shields were prepared in a certain way that when the fiery darts or when the enemy would shoot arrows or whatever, they could catch that on their shield and it would extinguish the natural fire that was coming from what the enemy was shooting at them. In the same way, we are to take the shield of faith that will take care of every evil dart that is fired at us. That every time the enemy tries to bring us down and, and to shoot us and throw these barbs at us, the shield of faith will keep us standing firm. Two of the primary tactics of the enemy is fear and doubt. That if the devil can cause us to be afraid, that is the opposite of unbelief. Or that is the opposite of faith, rather, is fear. That if the enemy can cause us to, to fear the circumstance, or fear the situation, or fear the future... He wins. He will get us. Because if we're fearing what the devil is going to do or what life is going to bring, guess what that means? We're not having faith that God is in control. We're not having faith that God is going to bring us through whatever it is if we are fearful in the situation. The enemy tries to bring in doubt and unbelief. And from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, what does Satan say to Eve? Hath God said? Did God really say this? And it is the primary tactic that he uses today is to cause us to be afraid or to question what God has said and whether God is for us and whether God is really going to do what he said he's going to do. We're living in difficult times. We are living close to the end times as the Bible would lay them out in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And a lot of times, people are afraid of what's going on in the world around us. When they see all the, the problems that we're facing, and they see the, the tra trajectory of our country, and what's going on in the Middle East, and every time something goes on over there, we're like, man, could this be it? And every time there's a new technology, and whether it's the vaccine or whatever, and chips under your, microchips under your skin and whatever... And people are afraid. We are to be aware of what's going on. And, and I would tell you, I don't want to endure persecution. I don't want to have to make a decision between preaching the gospel and going to jail. But at the end of the day, we know that we will win if we stick with Jesus Christ. That regardless of what the government will do, our people will do. We don't have to be afraid. All we have to do is to keep our faith in Jesus Christ and we can overcome the enemy. 
I've said it before, everybody wants to go to heaven, just nobody wants to die to get there. And I would love just to go straight there without dying. I'm not any different than anybody else. But my faith is that regardless of how I get there, I'm going to get there. Whether I die or whether the rapture comes, whether I die in my sleep or whether I'm persecuted and my head is chopped off like Paul, I will get there. And my faith in Jesus Christ will not waver in that evil day or in any evil day. Standing firm. Verse 17, we are to stand firm with God's salvation. Put on salvation as your helmet. I told you earlier, verses 14 through 16 are technically, they're one sentence in Greek. This is a new sentence with a new verb form, uh, putting on the helmet of salvation, and we're going to see in taking up the sword of the Spirit. The question I have for you today, whether you're in the room or you're watching, is do you know that you're saved? This is the reason he's putting it here. Put on the helmet of salvation. You have to have an assurance that you're saved. You have to know that what you have believed is real. You have to know that what the Bible says is true. And that when you have lived that out and when you have been born again, you have to know that you are saved. I don't don't know that I had ever really experienced this. I probably heard it in various contexts, but it was when I was in seminary. There was a lot of talk about assurance of salvation. People questioning. These are people that are even training for ministry, questioning whether they're really saved. And and, and one of the number one problems that the people in their churches were facing was this assurance of salvation. People write books on it to try to assure you. Let me just tell you, man, you are saved. Having to convince them over and over that they're saved. And the reason for that is because their salvation was based on somebody just telling them they were saved. Repeat this prayer after me. Back in the day, it was just walk the aisle. Come walk the aisle and shake the pastor's hand, and that's a sign that you have, you're saved. I would question my salvation, too, if I can't find it in the Bible. It's why Peter in Acts chapter 2, when, when they ask him in verse 37, what shall we do? How shall we be saved? He didn't say repeat a prayer. He said, repent, turn from your sin, turn from your way, follow Jesus Christ. Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. When you have that experience, you don't have to question whether you're following the Scripture. You don't need somebody else just to tell you, yep, you're saved now. But you have the testimony of Scripture that says, I'm saved. I have done what the Bible has said. I have received what Jesus has offered, and I am saved. 
But if you don't know and if you're not convinced of your salvation in the evil day, you will question it. In the day of battle, you will question whether or not you're really saved and whether God really exists. I've probably said it before, and it's not, not new with me, but a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. When you truly experience Jesus Christ, you don't need somebody to, to tell you that you experienced him. When you truly experience Jesus Christ, when somebody says, oh, I don't believe that that's really true, you've been there, you've done that, you've got the t-shirt. That the experience will outweigh anybody else's argument. A friend of mine, and I'm hurrying, will give you even more hope as the singers and musicians come. I still have one whole other point and a conclusion, but I'm going to wrap it up. A good friend of mine I met after I came to Olathe, he surprised me one day by telling me that he had spoken in tongues. And it was a shock to me because in previous conversations, he didn't really act like that he believed in this Pentecostal experience. His sister who lived uh, in Nebraska was Pentecostal. And said that she was always after him and he just kind of kept pushing it aside. But at a time, he wasn't even seeking to be filled with the Spirit. He was praying. He was in agony and he didn't know what to pray and he's walking around a building, a prison where his son was kept. He was crying out to God. And in that moment of walking around, he began to speak in other tongues. That he went from being a skeptic, and I'm not sure about this, to I know it's real. I still got some work to do on him to convince him that the Bible says not only is it real, but it's needful and it's essential. But he experienced it. You can't take away that experience from him. When you experience the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ, nothing the devil can do to take that away from you. If you know, I know what I have experienced. I know it's real. I have experienced his salvation. Lastly, standing firm with God's word course you see the title slide has a bible and a sword the bible which is the sword of the spirit or the sword of the spirit which is the word of god if i would tell you once again you're to take it up how do we take it up it's an imperative how do we take up the sword you got to read it study it memorize it when jesus was tempted in the wilderness as he began his ministry Satan came to him at or near the end of his 40 days and tempted Jesus. And Jesus quoted the book of Deuteronomy 
in every temptation and said, it is written. I, I realize Jesus is God in flesh. But I also realize that Jesus came as a little baby. He was raised through that Jewish tradition where they memorized the Torah. They memorized the first five books of the Bible as the little kids. And by the age of five, they had it all memorized. That it wasn't any different for Jesus than any other Jewish kid. And when the enemy comes, he says, it is written. I don't care what you say, because it is written. I don't care what you, you say about my my past or what you say about my future it is written I don't care what you say that I should do or whether you say I'm condemned it is written and it may be too late for us when the evil day comes to decide to go and study his word and go and look and see what the Bible says which is why we have to be prepared for that evil day if we're going to stand when the day comes we have to be prepared we got to stand firm with God's truth his righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and standing with His Word. As you stand together, there are some who would tell you that on a daily basis that you are, you should pray the armor of God on you. I don't know that I would say that you need to pray it on you because if I read the text right and I told you you're to put it on and keep it on but it's not a bad idea that daily to walk through these things in your daily prayer time with God and say Lord I thank you that I know who you are I thank you that I know that you and you alone are God over all I'm keeping on the truth. I'm keeping on that belt of truth. And, and to walk through the belt of truth and the, the body armor or breastplate of righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for the righteousness that you have given me. Help me to live according to that righteousness today. Let my heart and my affections and my desires, Lord, be pleasing to you. To line up with what you called me to be and to do. And thank you for your peace that you have torn down that wall that separated the two of us and we are at peace together Lord thank you for that peace let me walk in peace today so I don't know that you need to put it on you need to make sure you keep it on and praying that daily is a good way to do it thanking him for these things his righteousness his peace the faith that only he gives thanking him daily for the salvation that only he brings and taking up the sword of the spirit Lord, help me today to live out your word. Help me to learn your word today. Help me to memorize your word. Help me to know your word. As the psalmist said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Help me to do that today. I would tell you that going into battle unprepared is almost a guaranteed way to fail. Which is why Paul tells us we're going to stand firm. we got to do certain things. He's not telling us to stand firm if there's not a battle coming. He's not telling us to put on the armor of God if it doesn't really matter. 
There is nothing superfluous in Scripture. There's nothing, they're not just throwing away stuff. But God gives us what we need to live the Christian life so that you and I can spend eternity with Him forever. And aren't you thankful for what God has done in your life? Would you lift your hands right now, your voices to the Lord, and would you thank Him, Jesus? We love you. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done.